Good morning, everyone. Hope you had a good Christmas and a good New Year and are back today to listen to God's Word and study it together. So turn with me in your Bible, please, to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles underneath a chair near where you're sitting, and it's found on page 1010, 1010, Zechariah chapter 4. And I should say, Happy New Year, right? I am fighting a little bit of a cold, so hopefully my voice will last through the next half hour or so. But uh, speaking of New Year, a lot of people are fond of sending Happy New Year messages via Facebook. I got a lot of them. I'm sure you did too. People use the little memes, the little graphics, all kinds of little creative things to wish people a Happy New Year. I got one that said... uh, very positively said, new beginnings, new ideas, new energy, exciting and surprising. Happy New Year. Another one that someone sent says, I've already decided 2016 is going to be ridiculously amazing. That's positive. And then I found a thing on uh, Facebook that was a little personal survey that you're supposed to fill out that tells you, what will happen to you in the new year. So I decided, okay, I would do that. And this is what I found out that's going to happen to me this year. I'm going to stand for an election. I, I don't know what office that would be, but um, that's not going to happen. I would love number two to be true. I've got some old friends I'd like to reconnect to. I'm not going to travel to Hawaii. That's out of the question. I would love number four, be in great health. But then when I got to number five, I thought, wow. That's... That's why this was so striking, because as many of you know, I, am, I did write a book. It's in the editing stage right now, and so it's going to be a bestseller. Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> of course, I think I'm going to need your help to make that happen, so do a little shameless marketing here. But really, it is nice to think positively about the new year ahead, isn't it? Um, but if last year was any indication... I think we better get ready for 2016 not being a whole lot better. I mean, really, think about all the awful things that happened both here in the States as well as around the world last year. You think of the terrorism, the acts of terrorism here and abroad. You think of the conflicts, the controversies, the things that divided us, the riots, the protests. I mean, 2015 was was really pretty horrible in some of those respects. And then you add to that the advance here in the West of secularism, the decline of the church here in the West, the declining voice of uh, reason, you might say, in many ways. And I haven't even spoken to your own personal struggles. I wonder what's going to happen in your own personal life or in your family. There's no way to know. But likely there are going to be some hard things that will happen to many of us. It's easy to get discouraged, isn't it, when you begin to think about all that. It's easy to get really discouraged. In fact, what some people might want to do, when, especially when they think of the state of religion here in the, in the uh, United States, they, they think, well, the best thing for me and the best thing for Christians to do is just go inside our homes, lock our doors, pull down our shades, retreat, withdraw, don't care, don't get involved, don't do things with neighbors, don't... Uh, worship, don't rejoice in our salvation, don't really be committed to our church, and so on and so forth. 
That's what a lot of people begin to feel when they get discouraged. And if you feel even a little bit of the way that I've described, you can understand what the people of God felt like in the days of Zechariah. Let me give you a little introduction to this book because it is hard to just plunge right into Zechariah chapter 4. I, in fact, I, I felt after the first hour that some of what I'm going to be telling you is kind of funky and uh, it's kind of weird. These are visions. This is apocalyptic literature. And so I'm going to ask you right now to kind of hang on to the first half of this sermon while I walk you through chapter 4 of Zechariah, because if you'll hang on till the end, there's going to be a lot of practical application. But you've got to get through the first part. So let me give you some introduction. The date is 520 B.C. The place is Jerusalem. It's been nearly 70 years since what we now call the exile. Some of you know some of the history of the people of God, the Israelites in the Old Testament. In 586 B.C., the Jews who were in Palestine were taken captive by the Babylonians and deported to Babylon. But the good news is that in 539 B.C., the Persian kingdom took over. The Persians under King Cyrus conquered the Babylonians. And one of the first things that Cyrus did as the new king of this empire was he issued an executive order. He issued an executive order that allowed the Jews who were in exile in Babylon to go back to their homeland. And so they were able to return to Palestine, to Israel, to Jerusalem in particular. And uh, that was really, really good news. But when they arrived in Jerusalem, guess what they saw? Devastation everywhere. They saw the devastation that the Babylonians had wreaked upon them back in 586. They saw the devastation that was the result of decades of neglect. And the temple, the central piece of Jewish religious life, the temple lay in ruins. So the first thing that the Israelites decided to do was we need to rebuild the temple. That's so very important to us. They succeeded in laying the foundation. And a man whom you're going to meet today in more detail a little while later, Zerubbabel, He was the leader of that effort. Zerubbabel led the effort and this temple was eventually called after his name. But they succeeded in laying the foundation. But the problem was that almost immediately the project ground to a halt. Pagan neighbors who lived around the people of God didn't want a Jewish temple in their backyard. In the book of Ezra, which you should really read to fully understand the book of Zechariah, In the book of Ezra, it says that the people of the land, and those were the pagan neighbors, the unbelieving people around them, the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. They used intimidation, criticism, mockery, trickery, deception. They used threats, and it worked. Even some of the Jewish people themselves lost heart. And they turned against Zerubbabel. So the people stopped rebuilding the temple. They just let the foundation sit there. In fact, for some 16 years, nothing happened. It was just a foundation, nothing more. And the people went on with their lives. They began to get self-absorbed. They began to get so discouraged. They, they hid. They locked their doors, basically. They 
ignored what God had called them to do. They gave up. But God did not give up on them. One of the things that God did was he sent them two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. In fact, in the Old Testament, those two books sit side by side. Haggai is very short. Zechariah is rather long. Zechariah was known as the prophet of encouragement. Some people call him the prophet of hope. And I hope you'll see why shortly. The first six chapters are the funky part. This is where the apocalyptic literature, it, it reads a lot like the book of Revelation, in which the angel, an angel of the Lord, comes and wakes Zechariah up in the middle of the night and gives him eight visions, wild, freaky visions. We're going to be looking at the one that's in chapter 4. The chapter 4 vision is the fifth of the eight visions that God gave to Zechariah. So what I want to do is read chapter 4, then we're going to pray, and then I'll show you the plan from there. So let's uh, dive right in. Let me read for you Zechariah chapter 4. It's on page 1010 of your Bible there. Hear God's holy, true, and life-changing word. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me. This is Zechariah speaking. Like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it. And seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it. One on the right of the bowl, the other on the left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. And then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power. But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees that are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. And then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. And ask God to help us to understand and apply what we read here. Father, thank you that you've given us this word. It is rather mysterious. And so we need the Holy Spirit to come. <clears throat> One of his jobs is to teach. And so we ask that he would be our teacher. And most of all, that he would direct our attention to Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's our outline today. I want to first talk about the features of the vision. Then we're going to talk about the meaning of the vision. And finally, the application of the vision. So pretty simple. Let's dive right in. 
First of all, the features of Zechariah's vision are really pretty obvious. There are four main things that the angel of the Lord explains to him that God shows to him. Feature number one is this golden lampstand in verse 2. Right? I mean, it was made of gold. It had a bowl on top. This is an artist's rendering. It was one of the few that I felt was fairly accurate that I found online. But this lampstand was made of gold, had a bowl on the top, and then underneath that were seven smaller bowls. And in each bowl, there were seven lips, the Bible says, or another translation is wicks, so that there were a total of 49 lights on this one lampstand. Surely it would have put out a bunch of light. Very, very effective lampstand. Second feature is the oil. The oil is what obviously makes the light happen. Verse 12 mentions golden oil that is pouring into the lampstand from pipes that are attached to the branches of olive trees. So that's the third feature, these olive trees. There was one on the right of the lampstand and another on the left. And these trees are freely dripping oil, olive oil, into spouts or pipes or channels, I guess you might say, that that carry the oil down to the bowl from the olive trees. So Zechariah's vision is of an infinite supply of oil. Keep that in mind as we go through. An inexhaustible supply of olive oil. And then fourth and finally, there's this other feature that's not in the picture, and that's the mountain. Did you catch that in verse 7? The angel says to Zechariah, Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Or God bless it, God bless it. Something like that. So those are the features of the vision. Let's talk now about the meaning of them, because that's what I'm sure you're curious about. What in the world do these things mean? First, what what about that mountain? Let's take the last one first. The mountain that the angel is talking about in verse 7. Really, when you think about it, you can figure this out. This mountain is the mountain, in a word, of discouragement. It's a mountain of discouragement. Because the people faced a mountain of opposition in the rebuilding of the temple. I'm talking about the problems, the delays, the fears, the intimidation of the neighboring pagan peoples, the low morale of the people themselves. I mean, you've got you've to understand, you could read Haggai and Zechariah to understand the full picture, but they, they had very little morale. It, there was a spirit of malaise that had settled down upon the people of God. And so that was part of this mountain. They were weary. The only thing they could think of is, we have such meager resources. We're supposed to build a temple We can't do that. We don't have enough resources. We don't know what we're doing. It seemed like an impossible task. So that's what I see as this mountain that the angel talks about in verse 7. Next, the two olive trees. What do they mean? Well, they're a symbol of God himself. Because think about it. The olive oil is coming from the trees. God is the sovereign source of all things, right? He is the sovereign source of the olive oil. You also get a clue of God's presence in this passage from verse 10 that talks about seven eyes of the Lord. 
seven eyes, the number of completion or perfection, seven eyes of the Lord, seven eyes representing God's omniscience, God's omnipresence. In other words, when you're looking at these two olive trees, you ought to think about the presence of a sovereign God who gives the oil along with everything else that we need in life. Thirdly, verse 12, Zechariah is particularly concerned with two branches. Did you see that in verse 12? It says in verse 12, um, let me read that again. It says, uh, a second time I answered and said to the angel, what are these two branches of the olive trees that are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? And the angel said to me, don't you know what these are? And I almost want to insert, you dummy? But he didn't say that, I know. But don't you know what these are? And you and I would identify with Zechariah when he says, no, my Lord, I don't. And so uh, in verse 14, the angel tells him what the two branches are. He says that these branches are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And you're thinking, okay, I'm supposed to understand that. But let's dive in and dig in a little bit deeper. Most scholars believe, and I agree, that these two anointed ones, or these two sons of oil, is what the literal phrase means, are Zerubbabel and Joshua. Now let me talk about that a little bit. Zerubbabel is the governor. I told you that already, but I'm going to give you some more information about him shortly. Zerubbabel was the governor of the people of God in Judah, But Joshua, you've not met him yet, Joshua was the high priest of the people. And so those are the branches, and I'll I'll show you why shortly. They connect the lampstand to the source of the oil. The reason that I say that these are the branches are that these are the human means, or Zerubbabel and Joshua were the leaders that God raised up and used to get the oil to the lampstand. That'll make more sense shortly. But let's go back and talk about Zerubbabel. Who was he? I said he's the governor. He was the governor. So that means that Zerubbabel occupied the kingly office or the royal office of the people. There were no kings now in this time period. So Zerubbabel was the highest office in the land. He was the governor. He occupied the royal or the kingly office. One thing that's interesting about Zerubbabel is he was the grandson of King Jehoiachin. Now those who know their history well know that Jehoiachin was the next to the last king of Judah. And so Zerubbabel was his grandson. That means he belonged to the Davidic line of kings. You find Zerubbabel's name in the genealogy of Jesus. So think about that. He represents kingliness, royalty. Joshua, on the other hand, I said that he was the high priest. So he occupied the priestly role in the land of Judah. So think about those two branches, those two sons of oil. What do you think of when you think of king and priest? Side by side, king and priest. I hope you're thinking of Jesus. Because these two branches are a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. After all, Several times in the Old Testament, Jesus is called the branch. The branch that sprung out of the line of David to save Israel from their sins. And we know from other places in the Bible 
that Jesus Christ was both king and priest in one person. Think about that. After Jesus Christ died on the cross, he rose from the dead. Forty days later, he ascended to heaven. He went to heaven and is now seated on a throne. He is reigning and ruling from heaven. He is protecting and providing for us. And at the same time, Jesus is our great high what? Priest. He is our priest. He is our mediator between God and us. He is, one, he is the one who is praying for us, interceding for us all the time. And so Jesus Christ is both of these branches in one person. He is both king and priest. In fact, in the very next chapter of Zechariah, look at what Zechariah himself says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch with a capital B, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. Friends, this is radical stuff for the Old Testament because there was not a man who united both king and priest. The only one you might be thinking of is Melchizedek. And Jesus Christ, who is like Melchizedek, is both king and priest in one person. So here, let me put it in my own words now if I've lost you. God is saying through Zechariah that one day a man whose name is the branch is going to come and build the temple of the Lord. That man is none other than Jesus Christ. Only the temple that he's going to build is not made out of stones. It's made out of people because it's his church. It's his redeemed people. Do you remember what Jesus says in Matthew 16? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So let's review. You got a mountain. That's the mountain of discouragement that faced the people of Judah. You've got two olive trees. That's God the Father. You've got two branches. That's God the Son. Now what about the oil? The oil flowing from the trees, through the branches, into the lampstand is representative of the Holy Spirit. Here we're talking about the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Why do you connect the Holy Spirit with oil? Well, it's because people in the Bible were often anointed with oil as a symbol of the empowering, enabling Holy Spirit. So what? What are we learning here? What is this picture developing into? The picture that God gives Zechariah is that of God the Father through Jesus His Son constantly and graciously giving the Holy Spirit to His people in order to strengthen us and empower us to do His bidding in the world. But that leaves one more thing, the lampstand. What does that mean? The lampstand. Well, to Zechariah, it was really not much of a mystery. The lampstand represented the people of Israel. God's people, the nation of Judah. They were God's people. They were called to be the lampstand of the world. We would say the light of the world. In fact, the prophet Isaiah had said that you people of Israel are to be a light to the nations so that salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. 
This makes sense, right? I mean, what does a lampstand do? It gives light to a dark place. Just so God gave a mission to the people of God in the Old Testament. And that mission was to be a light to the nations, to pierce the darkness and let people know that Yahweh is Lord. That's why rebuilding the temple was so important. So that the light could be concentrated in a place. And so that the Gentiles could come and witness and observe and worship along with the Jewish people of God. In the same way, let's bring that up to our, our time. In the same way, for this lampstand represents the church. The redeemed people of God today. And our mission is the same as that that Israel had. Namely, to declare and to demonstrate the truth that Jesus is Lord, to pierce the darkness around us with the light of God's love and grace and the message of the cross. That's the meaning of these various features of Zechariah's vision. So let me summarize and bring them all together. What God is saying to Zechariah in chapter 4 and through Zechariah to the church today is that the work of God gets done by the people of God by means of the Holy Spirit of God. Okay, that's as I see it, the message of this vision. The work of God gets done by the people of God by means of the Spirit of God. And that's what verse 6 is all about. Verse 6 is the key verse of the chapter where God says to Zechariah, Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. If I were to put it in my own words, I would say that we succeed not by our own effort, but by the Holy Spirit's constant ministry of grace. As I sit here, stand here today and you're sitting there listening, you're, a lot of you, I suspect, come with discouragement to this place. Some of you are very discouraged. You may feel like these Jews in 520 B.C. There may be things going on in your own life, in your home, in your relationships, in your work, or in your circle of influence that are very discouraging. And so what you see is a mountain of obstacles blocking you from enjoying the calling that you sense God has given you, blocking you from joy, blocking you from the relationships that you had so desired. We as a church, capital C, we may be feeling very small, very weak, very much like the people back in Zechariah's day. We who are Christians in a strange land with strange things happening around us. We look at our setbacks, we look at our losses, and we may think all these people around us think we're crazy, they criticize us, they marginalize us, they make fun of God, they hate what He says in the Bible. And so our temptation, like I said earlier, is to pull back, to to, uh, withdraw, to retreat, to not love, to not serve, to not get involved with them but rather to protect ourselves and build a wall around us. But Zechariah's message is that Jesus is going to build his temple. Jesus is going to build his church. And he's going to do it not through political power or legislative action in Washington, D.C., not by military takeovers or financial fortunes. He's not going to do it by celebrity preachers with smoke machines in sold-out stadiums. He's going to do it. You know how God's going to build his church through the Holy Spirit, using quiet, ordinary means. Like the Bible, and prayer, and fellowship, and community, and baptism, 
and the Lord's Supper. And by using broken, unspectacular people like you and like me. Because the power comes not from us, but from God. The power to do anything comes from Him. That's why we can be Christian optimists. That's why we don't have to be pessimists. We can be Christian optimists because Jesus is going to finish what He started through His Spirit-empowered church. Now do you see why Zechariah is called the prophet of encouragement? His visions, not just this one, but the other ones in chapters 1 through 6, were so encouraging to the people of Judah that do you know what they did? They re-engaged. They re-engaged. They got restarted. They pulled together, got back to work on the temple, and by four years, by the time four years had gone by, 516 B.C., they had finished the temple. And as I said earlier, it was called by the name of Zerubbabel's temple or the second temple. It was finished. They got re-engaged because they'd been encouraged by the vision of the lampstand, the olive oil, and the oil. All right, that's first half. Now you're saying, I hope, what does this mean here? What does this mean for us at UPC? Why did you pick this passage, Mike, as our New Year sermon in 2016? How can I apply these things? All right, let me give you six applications. And they all start with the letter R, so you can uh, hopefully remember them a little bit better. Six quick applications of Zechariah's vision. Application number one, remember where your power comes from. Remember where your power comes from. Power in your marriage, power in your parenting, power for you kids to obey your parents, power to stay pure, power to stay faithful to God, power to love your neighbors, power to be a good, diligent worker, to be an honorable boss, to be a disciplined student, power to age graciously instead of with bitterness, power to do anything comes from God, comes from the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit symbolized here by the olive oil. Application number two, rely on that power. Rely on that power. See, we who love theology, and that's the way Presbyterians tend to be, we are good with number one. We love to remember. We love to think. We love to analyze. But this one is harder because this means that not only must you think about what this means, you must live it out. You must rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. And there's a very simple way to do that. It's called prayer. Jeremiah 33, 3 says, Call to me, this is God speaking, Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. That promise tells me that God delights to help helpless people. He's just waiting for you and me to admit our weakness and our helplessness and to ask Him to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Maybe your one goal in 2016 should be to pray more. That would be a great goal. When I was a kid, I read that book, The Little Engine That Could. I grew up believing, I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. My parents often told me, Mike, you can do anything you put your mind to. I think I can. Well, you know what I've discovered? I can't. 
I can't. I struggle. You know what? I struggle with the same things I struggled with as a teenager. I don't love very well. I'm pretty self-centered. I'm too broken to climb the next hill on my own power. But there's one thing I can do, and that's pray. And you can too. And we can ask the Helper, that's His name, the Holy Spirit, the Helper, to help us up that hill. And we better have that attitude as a church too. Application number three, rejoice in little victories. Rejoice in little victories and little gains. Look at verses 9 and 10 once more. Verse 9 says that the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you'll know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For, listen, whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. You know, one of the things that discourages us the most is when we don't see progress. Right? When we don't see things happening, when we don't see our sanctification happening, when we don't see progress in holiness, or we don't see progress in our kids' lives uh, embracing the gospel, or in our marriages, or we don't find progress in finding a mate, or something of that nature. You know, the problem often is that we have a microwave mentality instead of a crockpot mentality. We want it right now. We want big. We want spectacular. We want big. But look at the context of this promise. Zerubbabel's temple was dinky. It was much, much smaller than Solomon's temple. Ezra chapter 3 says that when the foundation of this temple, this one here, was laid the old men and women who had been alive when Solomon's temple was there looked at it and wept aloud because it was so small. But Zechariah says, no, no, no. Don't you dare despise the day of small things. Why? Because small victories are a sign that God's Spirit is at work, that the oil is dripping through the channels into the lampstand. Small victories are a sign that God's Spirit is working. Rejoice when you see those signs. Rejoice when you see that small steps being small, uh, small step being taken. You know, Jesus, it occurs to me, loved. He seemed to have a particular fondness for small things becoming bigger. He talked about a mustard seed becoming a huge tree, a pinch of leaven leavening a lump, a grain of wheat bearing much fruit, five talents becoming ten, two becoming four, a little child inheriting the kingdom, five loaves and two fish feeding five thousand. Jesus seemed to have this attachment to the small, to the unspectacular, to the ordinary. The gospel, you see, advances by inches, not miles. The gospel advances through ordinary, unspectacular people, not celebrities. That's number three. Number four, run. Run from those things that quench the spirit in your life. Run away from things that grieve. You know, the Bible does say in Ephesians 4, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. He can be grieved. He can be wounded. His activity that, lamp, that uh, oil dripping from the olive trees into the lampstand can be slowed down by our attitudes, by what we say and what we do and what we think about, things that dishonor God and wound the heart of the Holy Spirit. You know what I'm talking about in your own life, and so do I. 
Paul talks about things like bitterness and anger and slander and sexual immorality and covetousness and crude joking. So what we need to do, friends, is to ask God to give us a holy hatred of things that He hates and to help us run from those things when they rear their ugly heads. Number five. Some of you need to listen to this one. Re-engage. Re-engage. Can I be honest? Some of you have withdrawn. Some of you have pulled back. Some of you are in process of pulling away from the local church, from involvement with friends, involvement with small groups and Bible studies and things that nurture your soul. Maybe it's because you got discouraged. Maybe somewhere along the way in life you got the short end of the stick. Something happened that disappointed you. People disappointed you, let you down. Something happened that disillusioned you about the church or about God or about ministry. You really should read Haggai and Zechariah because they speak directly to people who are disengaged. And Haggai says, come on, people. Come on. Time is short. Get busy. Build the house. And Zechariah says here in verse 7, Who are you, O great mountain? Why are you in my way? In other words, is the way I see it. Why are you in my way, O mountain of fear and cynicism? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain. You see what God's saying? He's saying that God can deal with your discouragement. He can deal with your fear. But what he can't deal with is disengagement. What he can't abide is apathy and self-pity. Maybe this is the year that you say yes to something you've been putting off. Maybe this is the year you become a Stephen minister. Training starts this Saturday. I've been talking about it for the last few weeks, and we're looking for men and women alike to become Stephen ministers. Maybe God's been knocking on your door about that. Maybe this is the year you start helping us out with our English as a Second Language classes on Monday night. Maybe this is the year that you join a life group or help teach a Sunday school class or invite your neighbors to church or... Start talking to that person at work that you've been avoiding or sharing your faith with someone or helping out in the startup of a nonprofit. And you've thought of 99 reasons why you shouldn't do those things. But now God is saying, look, friend, look at Zechariah 4. You won't be doing it alone. You won't even be doing it on your own power. My Holy Spirit will empower you. Come on, cast fear to the wind. Put your hands to the plow. Re-engage. And finally, number six, rest. Now, you may wonder, how does this go with number five? It does. Rest in what God says in verse six. As I said, that's the key verse of the chapter. It's not by your might or your power. It's not by trying harder. It's not by worry and anxiety. It's not by learning all kinds of new techniques. It's not by New Year's resolutions. It's by the Holy Spirit that we work It's by the Holy Spirit that we overcome our mountains of fear and discouragement. See, Zechariah's vision, let's let's leave it with this. Zechariah's vision is of a sovereign father who loves you and a king and a priest who is praying for you constantly and an inexhaustible supply of the Holy Spirit, oil is constantly flowing down the pipes in the lampstand. So what this means is in a very real sense, 
you can relax. It's not all up to you. Isn't that good? Good news. It's not all up to you. Would you pray with me? Let's close. Just bow your head if you would and close your eyes and think about what are the mountains you're facing today. What mountains have come to mind as I've been speaking? In what areas are you feeling your weakness, your weariness, your fear? Several of you might have a cancer mountain that's looming out in the distance. Maybe it's a parenting mountain, like, will my kids hold on to the faith? Perhaps it's a money mountain. How am I going to do this? How am I provide? How will I provide for my family? How will I make ends meet? Maybe it's a marriage mountain. How can I ever forgive him? How can I ever forgive her? Several of you might be facing an infertility mountain or the mountain of singleness. You name it. Whatever your mountain of discouragement and fear, put a name on it. And think about the fact that the same Jesus whose spirit is building the church will help you climb those mountains and get to the other side. So trust him. Trust him. He didn't give up on his people then. He won't give up on you. And you know why I know that? Because of the cross. Because of the cross. Father, I want to thank you for sending your son to save us. Jesus, thank you for sending your spirit to help and empower and encourage us. So, Holy Spirit, we pray that you will help us trust you. Help us to rejoice in the small steps forward. Help us to re-engage and help us to rest. To rest in your grace, which is so amazing. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.